The following message is from Grace on the Ashley Baptist Church, located in Charleston, South Carolina. For more information about Grace on the Ashley, visit graceontheashley.org. Well, good morning, church. It's an honor. Uh, it's an honor and a privilege. Uh, anytime I can get before you uh, and open the Word of God and expose just a little bit, just a glimpse of the glory of Christ and his glorious plan of redemption. Uh, I'm thankful that you're here. Um, traditionally, this is one of the, the least attended services. We have a lot of people traveling, uh, and I'm thankful. I'm thankful that you're here. I'm thankful that, that God has kept you safe uh, this week. I pray that uh, your Christmas celebration was, was blessed. Um, I pray that, uh, that you got the gift that you wanted. Um, but I chose a text today. We're going to be covering a text that a lot of people preach before Christmas. Um, but I want to remind us all, and I saw a quote, I saw a quote this week, uh, that uh, this, is a, this is a perfect, perfect, perfect time um, to, to celebrate Christmas, even though it's technically after December 25th, which, by the way, is probably not when Jesus Christ was actually born. <laughs> um, but it's after the holiday. It's after the busyness of the, the, the real busyness of the season. Uh, so this is the perfect time to sit back quietly and truly reflect uh, on what God, the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit has done in the incarnation of Christ. Uh, without the hustle and bustle, if you will. So if you would turn in, in your Bibles with me uh, to Galatians chapter 4. I'll be covering verses 1 through 7 here this morning. Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Hear the word of the Lord. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God sent forth his spirit of the son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before you this morning and open up your word, we pray that you would reveal to us new truths. Truths that, that only the Spirit can reveal to us. We pray, God, that this, this text would be enlightened in our hearts and our minds in a way that we may not have, have realized before. And if we have realized the gloriousness that it would be made anew and afresh in our minds and in our hearts so that we'll understand the true beauty 
and the true magnificence of what you have done for us in Christ. And so now, Lord, we pray that as we, uh, as we, as we, as we take the next uh, few minutes and, and dive into this text, we dive into your word, I pray that this congregation that's gathered here today would see through me and see the glory of the Son of Jesus Christ. Amen. So Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians here, and a few years later, uh, he wrote a similar text to the Romans. And I'll just, uh, you don't have to turn there. If you want to, you can, uh, um, to Romans 8. Uh, and I'll read Romans eight fourteen, starting in verse 14. Paul writes this a little bit later on. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Paul here back in Galatians uh, has done a beautiful thing. He spent all of chapter 3 going over about 2,000 years, surveying about 2,000 years of history. And he highlights the relationship between Abraham, who received the promise, between Abraham and Moses, who received the law, and of Jesus Christ, who fulfilled both of those. So God gave Abraham the promise that through the seed of the nations, the earth would be blessed. God gave Moses a law which did not nullify the law, but instead showed how important the promise was. It didn't nullify the promise, but it showed how important the promise was. And so God fulfilled that promise in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, so that, so that those seeing their sin as they are confronted by the law might be drawn to him and make the discovery of all the blessings which accompanied the promise made to Abraham. It's a beautiful scarlet thread that flows throughout Scripture. And so that was essentially, in about two minutes, the message of chapter 3. Now, before I really get into our outline today and I jump into our sermon, I want to make it clear, uh, and I say this every time I preach, um, I tend to choose texts that there's, these are awful one-off sermon texts. Uh, These texts are, are, uh, to do them justice, are full series texts. Uh, And so as I was studying this week, I myself left feeling wanting uh, because there was so much more in this text that we could dig into over the course of weeks and maybe even months. Uh, So if you'll be gracious and kind to me, I'm going to attempt to pull out as much as I can. There's a lot of doctrine here. There's a lot of truth here. There's a lot of promise. 
Uh, and there's a lot of beauty uh, in these seven verses. If you'll come along with me, I'm going to do my best uh, to reveal as much of that as I can to you in the time that I have with you here this morning. Now, this is a text that is an actual, it's incredible. It's incredible for many, many different reasons. Uh, one of the most incredible reasons is uh, we see here in seven verses or less the doctrine of the Trinity. Now, Trinity is not a word you find in Scripture. Scripture doesn't just come out and flat out say, God is three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But we take texts, we take the truths of Scripture, we take God's Word in black and white, and we understand who God says He is, God the Father. And from that, we know who Christ is. We know who Christ says He is. And then from that, we have God the Spirit, so just real quick, a quick survey of the 4th through 6th. Look at verse 4 with me. God sent forth his Son. God the Father sent forth God the Son. And then a little bit farther down in verse 6. Because you are sons, God sent who? The Spirit. And so that was a freebie. That really doesn't have much to do with our text today. I just wanted to point that out because those little things that... Uh, when, when, when you may hear, you're going to knock on your door sometimes. Certain beliefs will say that Jesus never claimed to be God. Uh, certain beliefs will say the Spirit is not God. And you may be left curious, if, you, if you're not well-versed in Scripture, well, well, how do we know that the Trinity is, you know, God, the Godhead is three in one? Uh, here's a wonderful quick verse, a few verses to go to where the Trinity is clearly spelled out. Uh, their roles, we'll get to in just a second. Uh, we'll pull out what their roles are. But as our sermon starts today, uh, I have three points for us. And if you're taking notes out there, I'll just go quickly read them off for you so you can kind of follow along. Uh, first, we have the problem, or I've titled that man's plight. Secondly, I'll cover the solution, or God's plan. So we have man's plight, God's plan. And then finally we have the Christian privilege, or Christian privilege. Uh, so first, man's plight. You don't have to be in church very long to understand that we're sinners. All you have to do is open up the first few verses, or the first few chapters of the scripture, and see uh, that man born into sin. Uh, and in fact, we're not just born into sin, we're slaves to it. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. He is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. And we see here that we're slaves to sin, Throughout Scripture, that's revealed to us, uh, and we'll get over back over to Ephesians in just a moment. Uh, but we're also we're it's, it's a little deeper than that. So when God sent the law to us, He sent it not as a bad thing; He sent it as a guardian. The law did a few things. The law, first of all, revealed our sin to us; it condemned us. 
But the law also served a purpose of keeping watch over us as our guardian. Uh, Paul pulls that back out if you go back to chapter 3. Verse 23, Paul says, Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law. So Paul compares the law to a prison warden. If you go on to verse 24, he compares it to a guardian. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So these first three verses are very important for us to understand the rest of these verses that we're going to cover. One through three sets the tone for our understanding of verses four through seven. Paul's using the illustration of Roman life of that day. This is a, this is a cultural context. Um, that's why we say it's extremely important that as you read scripture, you understand the context and to whom it was written uh, so that we can fully understand what the author is conveying to us. Uh, Paul used the illustration of Roman life and Jewish life um, of that day to show that men under the law are like an heir to an inheritance that cannot have it yet. They haven't come of age. You see, civil law then establishes what an heir is. An heir as a son, although he is lord over all of his father's goods. A child, he may be, be able to walk around the grounds and see the beautiful landscape lawns and see the goods that, his, that he owns, that he'll have the rightful uh, inheritance to. But at that point in time in his life, he can do nothing with it. It's not technically, it's his, but it's not at the same time. And in that sense, says Paul, he's no different than the servant or the slave. He is the legal heir and future master of the entire estate. But as long as he's a child, he's just like that slave that keeps watch over him and uh, keeps him under subjection. He is the subject to those guardians, the subject to those trustees that have been put over him. They supervise him. They discipline him. They control him. The orders they give regulate his behavior. They restrain his behavior. He's under their authority until the time set by the father. And at that time, that child, that son, will be free from their control and enjoy his full rights as their master of the family estate and as heir of that estate. You see, a child in that family is absolutely certain of his inheritance. But even though he's certain of his inheritance, he's still held in subjection to those slaves at the time. They don't, they don't allow him to be in charge of those possessions. Um, but instead, they, they cause him to serve them. And because of this, as I mentioned before, he's no different than the servants that are keeping watch over him day to day. Now, but that child will eventually come of age and receive his inheritance. 
Paul points out, um, just by the way, you, you see this in Jewish culture. When, when young boys turn 12, uh, they have a ceremony um, in which there's a lot that goes into it. But at the end of this, this ceremony, the family, the homes, they uh, view this boy as a man at that time. And at that time, he receives his inheritance. He has full rights and ownership. Uh, he is actually, uh, at that time, he's allowed to comment on the scripture. Before that time, he can't. Um, uh, and so that, that was uh, in Paul's day. Uh, that's what he uh, was referring to. And Roman culture has something similar. Uh, when a young boy became about 14, I believe it is, um, they, they had a, a, a ritual or ceremony where uh, the, the young boy became a man in the eyes of the, the, the city and the eyes of the family. Um, but that's the picture that Paul is giving us here. He's, he's giving us a picture of a son who at one time will gain that inheritance. But until that time, the time appointed by his father, uh, he can't do anything with it. He's a slave to those who he's under subjection to. In this case, Paul says uh, he is no different than the slave. Now, Paul points out that at one time, we all, we all, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, for the Jews, that would have meant Mosaic law. And for the Gentiles, that means basic concepts of their pagan religions. But in either case, humanity is enslaved under a system uh, that cannot save but can only condemn their souls. Look at Colossians 2, verses, uh, Colossians 2, 8. Paul tells us, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Those elemental spirits are of the world. They're not according uh, to Christ. And as unsaved people... We were enslaved to sin, and we were in bondage to the law. Sin controlled us. The law condemned us. We're under constraint from the law, and we had no liberty. Now, it may sound like I'm saying that the law was a bad thing. It wasn't. And that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's not saying that the law is an evil thing. The law did not come from Satan. The law was given by God to Moses, mediated by angels. John Stott points out, just as during a child's minority, his guardian may ill-treat and even tyrannize him in ways which his father never intended. So the devil has exploited God's law in order to tyrannize men in ways God never intended. God intended the law to reveal sin and to drive men to Christ. Satan uses it to reveal sin and drive men to despair. God meant the law as an interim step to man's justification. Satan uses it as the final step to his condemnation. As non-Christians, we lived according to the basic principles of the world. 
the basic principles of religion. These basic principles are the, the, the physical, external aspects of man-made religion. These principles are that man is somehow saved by works. If, if we live a good enough life, then surely God will accept us. Salvation by good works, by the way, salvation by good works is the basis for all other religions except Christianity. Before conversion to Christ, all men are trusting in themselves and, and their good works to get them to heaven. That's all, because that's all we know. That's all the natural man knows. We try to be good people. We try to do good in the eyes of the world. But until he trusts in Christ, he'll, he'll never, ever know what it means to be saved by grace. Until then, it's all works. So there you go. The Gentiles lived according to the elementary principles of the world. The Jews practiced the elementary principle of the law. Now, it doesn't matter. Either one, uh, Paul says, uh, is not how we're saved. John MacArthur says this, all religion, all religion, no matter how sophisticated it may appear, even Judaism, all religion is a really elementary. There's no real maturity in any basic religion. The law was a form of religion that was elementary. It was elementary. And if you stayed there, you would be doomed. The point was to get from there to Christ. In Christ becomes full maturity. And so the example that Paul, the illustration that Paul uses is that of a son growing up to maturity and receiving his inheritance on that day that was appointed by his father. And so God's people waited. They waited for that day when God would free them from this bondage and, and the day when they would gain this full inheritance. And guess what? God had a perfect plan for that. And so God's plan. What is God's plan? Well, let's start in verse 4. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So when did God act? In the fullness of time. The time appointed by the Father. God's perfect timing. You have to remember God does nothing prematurely. In fact, he does things precisely when he means to. He knows the beginning from the end. And he waits until all is ripe for the execution of his purpose. Think about this for a moment. If Christ had come directly after the fall, it would have saved a lot of headache, wouldn't it? But would man at that point have the full understanding of the fruits of their sin? I say no. The fruits of sin wouldn't have been realized right after the fall completely. 
at least not enough to make where man feels so desperate and in need of a savior. Also, man's inability to save himself by obeying the laws was completely manifested. And for reasons God only truly knows, it was necessary and essential to permit evil long before the full remedy was revealed. Now, there were, you read commentator after commentator after commentator, and, you know, there, there are many, many earthly practical reasons that God might have chosen to send Christ when he did. Think about it. Makes sense from a worldly standpoint. Uh, we have the Pax Romana. It was a time of peace in Rome. Rome had pretty much conquered everything. There was no, no, no fighting. Uh, before the Pax Romana, travel between nations or, or cities would have been almost impossible. And speaking of travel, we had the Roman road system. We had a common language, Koine Greek, which allowed the gospel to be spread faster because most people in that region spoke the same language. So we have a time of peace. We have Roman roads that allowed the gospel to spread quickly and easily. We have a common language. Um, Also in the culture of that time, culture, context here again, there was a mass abandonment of idol worship. They saw over and over again that the idols they created for themselves couldn't help them defeat their enemies. And so culture after culture, were, they were abandoning their idol worship. Now, there were some other factors that might have played into God's timing. Um, but from a, a worldly standpoint, the man of a, a mind of a man, that, that's just speculation. God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts. <laughs> Neither are my ways your ways, declares the Lord. Isaiah 55, 8. In any case, the fullness of time had come. At just the right time, God sent forth his son. That's what he did. What did God do? God sent forth his son, born of woman. The language here denotes the eternality, the eternality and deity of the son, the second person of the Trinity. Paul defines Christ's uh, person, and his work. His person consists of his divine and human nature. Christ is, 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 you may have heard fully God and fully human. Uh, Probably a better terminology is truly God, truly human. Truly God, truly man. Christ was born of a woman. He was born under the law to redeem those who are under the law. You see, we don't have a great high priest who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses, unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Christ was born under the law, not as one obligated to fulfill it, uh, not only as uh, one obligated to fulfill it, but also as one identified with sinners who are under the curse of the law. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins 
of all the people. Now, propitiation, we talked about this word uh, this week. Propitiation is a word that simply means to, uh, it, it's, a, it's a wide range, but it simply means to turn away wrath. And in this, or to, to appease one anger, one's anger, in this case, what that means is that Christ made himself a substitutionary sacrifice. Why did he do that? It caused God's anger to be turned away. God's anger was appeased in the substitutionary sacrifice or substitutionary atonement of Christ. He made propitiation for the sins of his people. Uh, J.I. Packer, wonderful theologian, just passed away recently, um, said that if he had to sum up the entire New Testament in three words, you know what he would sum it up with? Adoption through propitiation. But only the one, listen to me, only the one who was tested in every way as we are could be the great high priest. Only the one who responded to every test in perfect obedience could be the faithful high priest without sin and worthy to offer himself as an unblemished sacrifice. And the only one who could offer himself as an unblemished sacrifice was God himself. In the flesh, not sinful man. God incarnate, Jesus Christ, truly God and truly man. God did this work. God did this work. Not you, not me. God did this work. Colossians 1.12, God the Father has qualified us. He, he qualified us to share in this inheritance. He rescued us as the Father from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son. The law can't save us, Romans 8.3, for what the law was powerless to do and that it was weakened by the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful man as an offering for sin. He thus condemned sin in the flesh. The law couldn't save. The law couldn't forgive sins. It couldn't remove God's wrath or take away punishment. But Jesus could. Jesus could. And so he came to earth to live a perfect life. And not only to live a perfect life, but to die in our place. Our sins were imputed, or that, that's just a word that means charged to. It's a, it's a transaction. Our sins were imputed or charged to Christ in his death. And Christ's perfect life and obedience was imputed to us by faith. But why? Why did God do this? To redeem those who are under the law so that we could receive adoption as sons. To redeem means to, to obtain or set free by paying a price. What was the price that God paid for our liberation and adoption? 
The answer is back in chapter 3. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. What did it cost God? It cost God the price of his son's life. And so Paul reveals to us here one of the most beautiful doctrines in all of Scripture. The doctrine of adoption. Now it's interesting that if you study the New Testament for very long, uh, adoption is clear. But if you go back to the Old Testament, it's not so clear. In fact, there's only three instances of adoption in the Old Testament. If this was a Sunday school class or something, I would, I would you know, give you a $2 bill if you could tell me what the three were. But um, we have Moses, we have Esther, and there's a third one that you probably may not have heard of. His name is Genubath, and it's in first, he's in 1 Kings 11. You don't have to know anything about him, uh, but that's the three, Moses, Esther, and Genubath. Uh, yes, yes, Israel is called God's son, but it's not uh, the word, the term adoption and the, the, the foundation of adoption is not attributed to Israel at that point in time. But this doctrine, this doctrine of adoption is one of those beautiful doctrines in all of Scripture. If you look back at the first chapter of Ephesians, when Paul talks about, uh, he talks about blessings. In fact, that the fact that we are blessed in verse 3, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ, he further says this, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he what? Predestined us to what? Adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. The great Puritan Thomas Watson says this, a man adopts for his son, he adopts one for his son, an heir that does not all resemble him. But whoever God adopts for his child is like him. He not only bears his heavenly father's name, but his image. The legal act of adoption is initiated by the one who adopts. You know, t- children don't negotiate for a parent, much to the chagrin of some of the children in this room, maybe. But children don't negotiate for a parent. Adoption is initiated by the one who adopts. There's nothing the child can do in the matter, it's completely up to his father. We talk about the doctrine of election uh, over and over again because Scripture teaches it. But take notice that the doctrine of election is for the purpose of adoption. The decision that, of what family we're born into is not our choice. But adoption is where you choose as a father and you take a son that is out of another family. That marvelous truth is part of the display of the glories of our salvation. We were chosen by God to become adopted sons. We were once children of wrath, 
yet he adopted us and made us children of God. And as we're brought into the family of God, all the privileges and right that a son or daughter has are now ours. What are those privileges? Christian privilege. Now, this is a a section that we could go on and on and on, and we can talk ad nauseum about the blessings and the the privileges uh, of of being a son of God. But I want to just pull out a few here. Um, Christian privilege. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Paul says that because you are sons, he has given us his spirit. When God saved you by the blood of Jesus, you were immediately indwelt by the Holy Spirit. We could go go on endlessly talking about the work and person of the Holy Spirit. But I want to specifically point out what Paul is telling us. Notice God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Abba means Father. It's an intimate, it's an intimate, affectionate word, such as using the word Papa, or even Daddy. It was a common term. It was a common term used which expressed an intimate relationship with that of your father and his child. I asked, my, I asked my, uh, Micah and Sarah Francis this morning, um, I, I, I just said, who am I? What, what's, who am I? And they said, Daddy. I said, why am I Daddy? And they looked at me. It's <laughs> a weird question. Because you're our father. Because you're our dad. That's the relationship. That's the relationship that we have in Christ with our father. We can cry to him, Abba, Father. Other children don't run up to me and say, Daddy. (laughs) That's reserved specifically for your own children. And that's a beautiful, beautiful term because it, it doesn't just denote who I am as their father. It denotes confidence and trust. And if you have children, you know this. All of you are children of someone. Daddy, Papa. It's also important that we point this, this phrase out because it's what Jesus says. It's Christ's own way of addressing his Father. In Mark chapter uh, 14, verse 36, in the Garden of Gethsemane, as he's praying, cries out, Abba, Father. And that way of, ex- of talking to God the Father, just as Jesus did, is now extended to all those who are his in Christ. They're heirs. The Spirit of God enables us to speak to God in this way. We also see it uh, in, the, in the verses I read from Romans earlier. The interesting thing about Romans 8.15 and our verses today is that Abba Father is used in connection with the Spirit's work in our adoption as sons. We were not his children. We could not cry, Abba, Father. And yet he adopted us. And now we can cry to him, Abba, Father. And because of this, we have assurance by the Holy Spirit 
of our salvation. Um, Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says this, in him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, what did he do? You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. We've been sealed and given a guarantee of our inheritance until the day of judgment when we can fully realize and take hold of it with Christ in heaven. The Spirit is our guarantee. He is our seal. It's the Holy Spirit who ministers to us and teaches us through the word. And it's he who seals the believer unto the day of final redemption. His presence in the Christian is the guarantee that God will bring the believer into the fullness of the stature of Christ. So we're given assurance of our salvation through the Spirit. You don't need to walk, if you're a Christian here today, you don't need to walk around saying to yourself, I'm not living as I should. I shouldn't have let that sin get a victory in my life. I wonder if I'm a child of God. Now, hear the words of Paul again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And so if you're following the lead of the Son, of the Spirit, you have an evidence of sonship. Full assurance. Full assurance that you are a child of God. And so let me just start to close it out here. Verse 7, Paul sums up uh, his argument to this point. You are no longer a slave, but a son. The witness of the Spirit within us the Spirit within us convicts us and convinces us that we are sons and daughters, children of God. And as such, sons and daughters, listen to this, sons and daughters, just, I'm just pulling this out of back at chapter 3. You can go back and read this yourself. Sons and daughters are no longer held prisoners by the law. Sons and daughters are no longer under the supervision of the law. They're no longer, no longer subject to guardians and trustees. Sons and daughters are free from the control of the law. Now, that doesn't mean, <laughs> hear me, that doesn't mean that we're free to do whatever we want. Because now, we're under the direction of the Spirit. Who brings us into such a close communion with God that we can cry, Abba, Father. And sons and daughters who live in communion with God and under the direction of the Spirit, don't need the law to guide them and discipline them because they're directed by a far superior power, the power of the Spirit. Lastly, Romans eight seventeen tells us this, and if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christians, this is what Christ did for you. He didn't come to sympathize with your sin. He did it to redeem you from your sin so that in him you might receive the promise of the Spirit. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts. Not so that you can fall back into a law-keeping, legalistic existence. 
because you're worried about God being angry with you, but rather so that you can cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit frees us to live in freedom that only sons and daughters, the only sons and daughters have in Christ. Children who delight in their father's will because they delight in their father's love. So friends, what does this mean for all of you? Well, to my non-Christian friends out there, my first prayer is that you feel the weight, that you feel the weight of your bondage to sin. I pray that as you strive to follow the elementary principles of the world, that you would be driven to the truth, that no matter how hard you work, no matter how good you try to be, you'll never be good enough, ever. I pray that you'll repent and cry out to the one who was born as a baby and lived a perfect life. You see, when Christ was born, it doesn't stop there. You know that, right? We don't just do, celebrate Christmas and now announce your New Year's and now we wait for Easter. We reflect year-round on what the birth of Christ actually meant because the birth of Christ was the beginning of a wonderful plan of redemption here on earth that was manifested from all eternity because the birth of Christ was the beginning of Christ's perfect obedience here on earth which leads to a cross. And as he died, remember that he died in your place. He made atonement for your sin. And if you confess those sins, you're promised. You are, pro- you are promised. First, John tells us in 1 John, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's not, a, that's not a maybe, depending on how I feel that, that day, God says. That's a promise. And God doesn't break his promises. Christian brothers and sisters that are here, find comfort in this truth. As I just mentioned, we celebrated Christmas two days ago. Seems like an eternity ago. He came to earth as a man. He came for you. He came to reconcile you to himself. He came to suffer once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He came and lived a perfect life in pure obedience to his Father's will. He died a substitutionary death in your place and my place. I deserve God's wrath. But Christ took that on. And then he rose from the dead so that when you do meet your Father in heaven, he doesn't see your sinful heart. Instead, he sees the perfect righteousness of the Son who made atonement for your sins. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. I want to close with a, a Spurgeon quote. It's, it's a bit long, but I, any Spurgeon quote is, is good enough to sit here and just read for hours. And this, I'll close with this. Spurgeon says, Now go away, heirs of heaven, with light feet, 
and with joy in your countenances, saying you know you are his children and that he loves you and he will not cast you away. Believe that to his bosom he presses you, that his heart is full of love for you. Believe that he will provide for you, protect you, sustain you, and that he will at last bring you to a glad inheritance. When you shall have perfected the years of your pilgrimage and shall be ripe for bliss, as he has predestined us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Would you pray with me? Father, there's so much truth wrapped up in this scripture. Truth that uh, it's hard, impossible even, to grasp without your spirit. And so we thank you, Father, for sending your spirit uh, into those believers here today. We pray, Lord, for those who don't know you, uh, that they would cry out for forgiveness of their sin. And they would believe upon Jesus Christ, the one who came, who lived a perfect life, who died a death that we deserved, and who rose again so that we can have hope to live with you for all eternity. We thank you for the, the seal of the Spirit in our lives. We pray that uh, you would assure us each and every day of our salvation. As we look to you, we know we find comfort, we can find peace, and it's all because you loved us that you gave the life of your only son on our behalf. So, Father, for those who don't know you this morning, I pray, I pray, God, that they would turn to you. For those who do know you, that they would be assured, they would rest in the truth and the beautiful glory that is of your son, Jesus Christ. And as our celebrations have, have, have waned, Lord, help us to reflect on the truth of what Christ actually came to do, the sacrifice he actually came to, to give to redeem us who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, co-heirs with Christ. All that is his are ours in him. Amen.